0: slow burn media and bill huffman present who killed a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless
1: we've got breaking news to get to this morning nearly 50 years after a teen was killed in naperville police and prosecutors now say they knew, know who her killer is this morning the will county state's attorney announced charges in the 1972 murder of 15 year old Julie Hansen Hansen's body was found in what was a cornfield near 87th and Modaf Road on July 8, 1972. She was found with a bicycle she had been riding to her brother's baseball game. The teen was stabbed multiple times. This morning, prosecutors charged this man, 76-year-old Barry Lee Welpley, with first-degree murder. At the time of the murder, Welpley was 27 years old. He was taken into custody Wednesday in Minnesota and will be extradited to Illinois.
2: Our detectives, like I've mentioned, were diligent, relentless, uh, had the faith that this case would be solved someday. And that day is today. This is something I never expected to be standing here uh, talking to you today. Uh, Julianne Hansen, 1972, uh, it's an outlier at that point. People often call these type of cases cold cases. This was never a cold case for our police department. We continually investigated this case throughout those 49 years.
1: Wow, so many years. Investigators credit advancements in DNA and genealogy for this breakthrough in the case. I know there are lots of questions still. Our Chris Ty is following the story. Make sure to check for his updates on the case starting on our news at 5.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 123 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media Podcast. At the end of last week's episode, I concluded by highlighting the case that we would be looking at this week, and that is the case of Julie Ann Hansen. It was on July 7, 1972, when 15-year-old Julie Ann Hansen borrowed her brother's bicycle to go to a neighborhood baseball game. Now, her parents, Jerome and Marguerite Hansen, were away at the time, and this meant that Julie's disappearance wasn't actually reported to police until Saturday afternoon by her 18-year-old sister, Jill. Now, the pain in her heart, or any parent's heart, who has to make that call to police has got to be unbearable. I would like to think that is probably one of the most awful things that you have to do as a human being is to report someone missing. It was later that day that the police department had put together an organized search for Julie, along with members of the community that volunteered. It was during the search when Julie's brother's bike was actually discovered on a gravel road just off of 87th Street and Knock Knolls Road. It was at this point when the search party began to focus on the area around where the bike was discovered. And for one unfortunate searcher, he discovered her body in a cornfield not too far from where the bike was found. And the Chicago Sun-Times reported at the time the tragic news that Hansen had most likely been sexually assaulted and had been stabbed 36 times. So, you have a community, and Naperville is a pretty large community, but it's a suburban a suburban community of Chicago. And it's a very nice community. So, when you have a type of crime such as this, it really does haunt cities like Naperville. I mean, just look at the Unsolved Maholovic case. I mean, it's become part of the fabric of Bay Village. And... It's really hard for a family, but also for a city and the citizens to move on when there's a cloud that hangs over a certain aspect of the town. I mean, nobody wants to have cold cases in their communities, and clearly it is only worse when it's the murder of a child or teen. I mean, just like in Bay Village, you don't expect things like this to happen in Naperville, Illinois. I mean, it is... Granted, seven times larger than Bay Village, but regardless of the size, I mean, this is a suburban area of Chicago, very wealthy, uh, well-to-do. In fact, according to the city's own website, Naperville is actually only 28 miles west of Chicago and has a population of around 145,000 people. Now, they do like to mention that the city is consistently ranked as a top community in the nation in which to live raise children, and retire. They go on to describe the city as being home to acclaimed public and parochial schools, the best public library school system in the country, an array of health care options, and an exceptionally low crime rate. And they actually do have a really low crime rate, which again makes these cases that I'm covering today all the more shocking. And I did mention that I was gonna speak about Julie's case, but there are a couple other cases that come up along the way. The City Run website also boasts about their quote, world class parks and thriving downtown shopping and dining area, a renowned outdoor museum known as Neighbor's Settlement and an active civic community. But like all great communities, there's a darkness hiding in the shadows. So the murder of Julianne Hansen really was a tragic and shocking event to the city of Naperville. There were basically no murders in the city of Naperville at that time. I mean, the Chicago Tribune reported in 1972 quote, Naperville police were looking for leads yesterday in the weekend stabbing murder of a 15 year old suburban girl. Quote, the body of Julie Hansen was found Saturday night in a cornfield on the rural southern limits of Naperville. Now, she was last seen Friday. And according to Irving Lichter, Naperville police chief, he said the girl was fully clothed when she was found, which led him to believe that she had not been molested. Now, that is counter to what the Chicago Sun-Times had reported. Now, the girl was last seen about 7 p.m. Friday when she rode her bike away, actually it was her brother's bicycle, from her home on 1229 Basswood Drive in Naperville. Again, that bicycle was found in a ditch off of 87th Street, and Julie's body was found only about 100 feet from that area. According to the Chicago Tribune, Jerome Hansen worked as a district sales manager for Chemical Lehman Tank Lines, Incorporated, which had headquarters in Downington, Pennsylvania. He and his wife also had a son, Mark 12., And that goes along with his sister, Jill. Unfortunately, when Julie's killer was not immediately found, and the fact that they had so little clues to work with, the case went cold pretty quickly. And then you had a red herring. After two decades, the police thought they caught a break. A possible suspect in Julie's death may have flown under the radar for decades, and was coming into focus in 1992. A man from Oswego was questioned by police for a separate murder, and he ended up confessing to police that day. Jerry Schnee of the Chicago Tribune wrote, quote, "For a generation, Major Morris displayed a different face to different people." Patricia Morris, his wife of 24 years, called him quote, "a loving man, a gentleman." And a father with, whose two daughters absolutely love him. Now his attorney, George Leonard, insisted Morris is nothing short of a perfect gentleman who has lived a law-abiding life for the last 20 years. But to Will County prosecutors, police investigators, and the family of a teenage girl who was raped and fatally stabbed in 1973, Major Morris is a brutal and vicious killer. And that is why law enforcement officials and family members said they were pleased when Will County Circuit Court Judge Amy Bertani Thursday sentenced Morris to a prison term of 100 to 200 years for the slain of 16-year-old Roberta Bobby Jean Anderson of Oswego 23 years ago. Anderson's body with more than 60 stab wounds was found on an abandoned farm near Bolingbrook on September 3rd, 30th, 1973, just three days after she was last seen alive and less than a half a mile from her home. And again, as I mentioned, the family was pleased with the sentence. And for you guys, the listeners, I'm assuming you probably think this guy is Julie's killer, right? Well, as the slow wheels of justice moved through the Morris's life, he was going to be probed for every unsolved crime that fit his modus operandi. And authorities said Morris could be indicted and another slain even within the next few months. And Will County State's attorney, James Glasgow, announced his office would be, quote, aggressively reviewing the cases of at least two other teenage girls. And one of those including the 1972 killing of Julie Ann Hansen of Naperville, who, like Anderson, was raped and repeatedly stabbed. Although authorities have said they always believed that Morris was the prime suspect in the Anderson case, he was not arrested at the time of the killing. Police said Morris was on the radar after he moved from Oswego, about two days after Anderson's body was found word to the wise if you commit a crime as violent as this and then you move just two days later well as much as you tried to not become a part of the story you're now part of the story and he went on to live in Missouri Wisconsin and Oklahoma over the next two decades the reporter goes on to state Morris may still be living a quiet life with his family in Dixon, Missouri, if it were not for the Will County and Naperville investigators who had reopened the case files of some long unsolved homicides. It was their research that led to a decision to seek blood samples from Morris for DNA testing in relation to the Hansen slain, And that led evidence technician Ed Hayes investigator Tom Morrison, and Naperville police detective Mark Carlson to travel to Waynesville, Waynesville, Missouri in late 1992. And that's when they interviewed Morris. And on December 3rd, 1992, Morris actually made a videotaped confession detailing the Anderson killing. That confession was played to the jury during the trial and was viewed again by the jury during its seven hours of deliberation. In that statement, Morris said he picked up Anderson and stabbed her numerous times after she rebuffed his advances. He said he drove to the area where the body was later found and assaulted her after she lost consciousness. He said he replaced the girl's clothing and covered her with a blanket before leaving her because I didn't want her to get cold. So again, you'd think this guy would be the killer of Miss Hansen. But unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be. It may have been the prevailing thought when Morris's confession to Anderson's murder was made public because of the similarities to Julie's murder, but not everyone agreed. And to be honest, it's a good thing they didn't, because it was another two decades before Hansen's family actually was awarded some sort of closure. So the real break in the case comes when a press conference was held by the police and local authorities where they said, quote, The last 49 years we've chased many leads, identified many suspects, and all were eliminated through the exhaustive investigation of our detectives. Though the case stalled, Marshall said it was never considered cold. Of course, detectives came and went over the years, some retiring without ever having brought closure to the case and to Hansen's family. Again, very similar to Chief Mark Spetzel and his recent retirement and the Amy Mihaljevic case and all the officers who retired without having answers within that case as well. Just tragic. And again, the department's diligence actually did pay off. And that was when Marshall and Will County State's Attorney James Glasgow announced that the teens alleged killer had finally been identified and that was one barry lee welpley love how they always use the three names to you know announce a a murderer or an assassin they just always have three names but either way he was charged with three counts of first degree murder in hansen's death weapon was actually a retired welder, and he was arrested in Mounds View, Minnesota, where he had been living. Welpley was actually 27 when Hansen was killed, and actually only lived about a mile from the family's home in 1972, according to police.
2: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? Dot com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: Again, online records showed that Welpley remained, at that time, in jail with a $10 million bond. So, the police chief went on to say, that the family was very pleased that they had found some closure. And they said, quote, As you might assume, it has been a long journey for our family. We are forever grateful to all those who have worked on this case throughout the many years. We would especially like to thank Team Julie, who are truly Julie's heroes. Marshall, who had been with the police department for nearly as long as the case remained open, said that despite the lack of arrests over the years, this unsolved case was not one of those cases that ever really left their minds. And he said that we were all conscious of Julie's murder, looking for the killer, and we had Julie's picture on our desks. And investigations like this, that's pretty common. I mean, I've been to Spetzel's office, and sure enough, Amy's poster's sitting right there. Or at least it did so when he was still chief of police of Bay Village. And ultimately it did take a lot of DNA testing and advancements in technology. And again, the advent of genetic genealogy, which has been the theme of these last two episodes, as well as next week's episode, in finding Hansen's alleged killer. The chief declined Friday to go into detail about DNA evidence that led to the arrest. Now, again, I mentioned the 1970s were an interesting time for, well, the nation, to be honest with you. But in Naperville, for example, or in the surrounding area, there were three specific crimes that were particularly brutal. Glasgow, the state's attorney general, said that the Hanson homicide was one of those three cases in Naperville in the 1970s who was brutally slain. Another was Roberta Jean Bobby Anderson, And she was killed in September 1973. And the other was Margaret Margie Stern in 1978. Let's hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. As you guys know, 2020 was terrible. And things are still pretty terrible. But today I am happy to tell you about BetterHelp.com. Because if there's anything that's holding you back or interfering with your happiness... BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, and it's really convenient because with the current state of the world, it really needs to be. So now you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. All you have to do is schedule secure video or phone sessions, and you can also chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And if for whatever reason you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They even have apps for your smartphone or your computer. So you are never out of touch. So again, if you're suffering from anxiety or depression, anger, stress, relationship issues, heck, not getting good enough night's sleep, trauma lgbt matters they literally have a licensed professional counselor for you and of course everything you share is confidential and the thing i like most is that this is actually an affordable option and who killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code who so when i get started today go to betterhelp.com/who all you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get you matched with a counselor that you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to betterhelp.com slash who. All right, we are back. Like Hansen, Anderson, 16 of Oswego, vanished while heading home and was later found stabbed to death in a cornfield on an abandoned farm near Naperville. The high school sophomore who had spent the day helping a friend finish a homecoming float had been stabbed more than 60 times, and that does sound very similar to the Hansen case. According to the paper, Stern was 18 when she vanished as she hitchhiked home from her part-time job at the College of DuPage in Glen Ellyn, according to the Illinois Prisoner Review Board records. The Tribune reported in 1978 that just after 8.30 a.m. on September 15th, Margaret Stern told a fellow clerk at the Register's Office of the College of DuPage in Glen Ellen that she felt sick and was going straight home. Unfortunately, she never arrived there, and two weeks later, police had no idea what happened to the 18-year-old. Police don't think she was kidnapped because there have been no ransom demands, but her parents didn't believe that she ran away so if you have parents who say that she didn't run away there's no reason for her to have run away and then you say there hasn't been any ransom demands I, i don't know sounds like you've watched too many movies if that is what you're waiting for just because it doesn't really happen all that often and when people are kidnapped typically they're kidnapped for not ransom reasons but sexual reasons and again Her family says she was happy, she had no problems with family that we know of, and she was even popular at school. She was a good girl. Now, she was also in the habit of leaving notes for her family to let her know where she had been or where she was going. And Woodridge Deputy Police Chief Michael Hager said on Sunday, after the girl had gone missing, that about 100 leads had been checked out. But Little had been learned from any of the leads. Quote, what's worrying to us is that Maggie's friends mentioned that she sometimes hitchhiked, and we're assuming that she did that day because she didn't have a car. We're asking that people try to remember seeing Maggie in Woodridge along Park Boulevard, Butterfield Road, or Route 53, where she had hitchhiked before. Now, Hager went on to say that Maggie was only 4 feet 11 inches and weighed only 95 pounds with long brown hair and braces on her teeth. Again, she was last seen wearing blue jeans, platform shoes, because this is the 70s, a brown or white top, and carrying a white macrame handbag. Again, the 70s. A 100-strong search party was formed and was unable to come up with any clues or evidence about Margaret's disappearance. It would be nearly a decade before they had any answers. Her skeletal remains were found in 1986. Not so coincidentally, just feet from where Anderson had been found nearly 13 years earlier. The two girls were dumped about two miles from where Hansen's body had been found in 1972. Major Morris Jr. was a former resident of the area, and again, he confessed to the killing of anderson in 1992. ironically morris's confession came as detectives sought blood and hair samples in connection with the hansen investigation morris who was a 19 year old garbage collector in 1973 first appeared on the police department's radar when he and his wife moved from their oswego home days after anderson's body was found as i mentioned earlier Not a good move if you commit a crime to just pick up and leave. When he was questioned in the somewhat aftermath of the homicide, he, of course, denied any involvement. But he did offer a little bit of speculation on what might have happened. He told police that Anderson may have been killed after rejecting a stranger's sexual advances. In 1992, the Anderson and Stern homicide cases were Reopened as well as the murder of 15 year old Julie Hansen. And again, Miss Hansen disappeared, as I told you, on July 7th, 1972. Now, this, of course, was prior to Anderson and Stern murders, but she had been sexually assaulted and stabbed, and that did kind of fit his MO. In 1992, collaborating investigators sought the help of the FBI. An offender profile dated September 6, 1992 was generated based on all the data from the Hansen and Anderson murders. That profile concluded that anyone developed as a suspect in either of those cases should seriously be considered a suspect in the other. His confession, 19 years later, actually was pretty close to what he had said to police that day. The records show how Morris was clearly deflecting, and so that's when Detective Waters conducted a third interview on the 27th of November, and it was during this time that he asked Morris what he thought might have happened to the victim. Morris suggested that the victim had been picked up by a stranger, that she had refused the stranger's advances, and was killed and the essential elements of a confession he gave 19 years later, it was just all very similar. He comes in and he confesses after being confronted with these officers, and it was a few months later he was indicted in Stern's killing, to which he later pleaded pleaded guilty. Again, investigators got their big break when Morris actually allegedly told a friend about what happened to Stern. Otherwise, those two murders would have never been solved. And they seem to be almost identical types of crimes, you know, copies of one another. And both victims, again, were teenage girls. And again, he was a stranger. But the perpetrator, again, Morris, he didn't hide the bodies like you would if you were looking to never be caught. Like, he didn't go and bury them. He just kind of hid them off the side of the road. He was eventually sentenced to 20 years in prison for Stern's murder. And Morris is actually serving out his 100-year sentence at the Menard Coru- Correctional Center. But at the press conference, Glasgow referenced how many in law enforcement believed for decades, decades that Morris had killed all three girls. And he looked behind him and said, But not these guys. These guys never rested, never put the file to the side. They always kept working, and when the new technologies came along, they availed themselves. And of course he says that the breakthrough didn't happen overnight and detectives really left no stone unturned and we poured over all the evidence. But it wasn't until they collaborated with some of the private labs in this country to test the DNA evidence to see if they could come up with a genetic profile and possibly build his family tree. The police also did something that is very important in a cold case, even though they won't say it's a cold case, is that they actually kept in regular touch with the Hansen family. And that was even after Jerome Hansen died in 2009, and then Marguerite Hansen died 10 years later. Glasgow said the charges against Wepley include a first-degree murder charge based on the 1972 statute. The other charges relate to three different theories of the slain. Now, he went on to say that the case is still under investigation. I'm not going to promise additional charges, but when you continue an investigation like this, things will arise, and we will deal with them as we find them. And again, this has never been a cold case for our police department. We were all conscious of Julie's murder. We all had her picture in the office. It was never away from our hearts. And at the time of Hansen's killing... Welpley was 27 years old and lived within about a mile of Hansen's home. And authorities announced the arrest. They said that they could not give details on the DNA evidence that they had because they did not want to jeopardize the prosecution in the case, which makes all the sense in the world. Again, attorney James Glasgow said, quote, I think probably... Everybody in the media is aware of this procedure and these detectives used it with great expertise and resulted in the charges being filed here today, unquote. Welpley was a retired welder and was taken into custody in Ramsey County, Minnesota. And he had been, at this time in early June, waiting extradition to Illinois. The Will County State's Attorney Office actually has charged Welpley with three counts of first-degree murder and set his bond, as I said before, at $10 million. The Hansen family said in a statement that they are grateful to all that have worked on the case throughout the years. And again, as of Friday evening in June, when the article was written, it was undetermined if he had obtained an attorney. I'm sure he has done so since then. But I have to make note, two killers with similar MOs, were operating within the same city around the same time and preying on the same young women. I mean, that's a scary thought. I mean, it's a scary thought for any female because you never know who the bad guys really are. I mean, you have Major Morris living a secret life and Barry Lee Welpley doing the same all while living in the same town. I don't want to play armchair detective here, but is it possible that these two men knew each other or... Am I just throwing things out there? I don't know. I guess anything is possible. But one thing is clear. There were some really shady people lurking around the Chicago suburbs in the 1970s. Hell, I'm sure there are more shade balls now than back then, just due to access to the internet. So the question at the end of this episode is, how do you protect the vulnerable without some draconian laws? The problem is you can't. Sure, you can always try to be an overbearing parent, But as we've seen in a lot of these cases, that can actually lead to resentment towards authority. And this will then lead them to make bad decisions in spite of their parents' rules and maybe end up in a situation that they may not be able to get out of. And with hindsight, the 1970s look as if it was a decade full of murder and mayhem. It's actually not too far from the truth. I mean, there were over... (laughs) There were more than 150,000 murders in the decade. Now, again, violent crime pretty much peaked in the late 80s and has started to decline pretty much ever since. I mean, look at New York City. I mean, they went from being like a cesspool in the 1970s and early 80s to a family tourist destination today. Well, let's see how they get things under control. But in... (laughs) This is nuts. In the early, in 1981, they had 1,833 murders. And in 1980, they had 1,821. To put that into perspective, New York City in 2020 had only 251 murders. I mean, that's a pretty low number when you compare it to the 1980s. Again, it's just crazy to think that you would have two offenders living in a city like this of only 140,000 people, and they're really doing the same exact crime. And that is just shocking. I mean, Chicago hit its peak numbers in 1974 with close to a thousand murders and again the city began declining its violent crime rate in the early 1990s as well but has seen an increase in the past year when nearly 800 people were murdered now again this is chicago proper i am not trying to connect those stats with the actions in naperville because murder is extremely rare there It's actually so rare that in 2019 and 2020, they only had one murder in each of those years. So it's a really damn safe place to live. And all the more reasons that the murders of these young women discussed today haunted the community. Unfortunately, we have seen the number of violent crimes increase over the past few years... But it is safe to say that we will never return to the 70s and 80s type of numbers. I feel like we're headed in the wrong direction when it comes to violent crimes and murders, though. It doesn't help the cause when every other person seems to own a gun. I'm all about self-protection, but it is a bit unnerving seeing some people carrying army-style long guns like they're holding a baby. I mean, guns can do good things, but when they are being used to... Intimidate certain populations it's taking things a little too far but I won't tread on you because gun gun owners are generally the safest people to own those kinds of weapons I get it I know it's a thing and I say go for it just keep them ha- out of the hands of children please on the other hand you have gun owners who don't go through the licensing process and therefore they possess, possess it illegally And this is much more likely to lead to a murder or an accidental shooting or discharge. This is why gun laws are worthless. And I'm not even a Second Amendment guy. The people who want to commit a crime with a gun will not be going the legal route. The country is already so saturated with weapons, it would be a waste of time to go on with some of this legislation they're trying to push through. Again, I'm all for people not being shot, but I'm also not going to stand in the way of someone exercising their rights because that is their right according to the Constitution. I will also say there have been cases where a bystander with a gun has actually helped decrease the violence by taking out a potential mass shooter. My only fear is when authorities show up to a scene, they may not know who the good guy is or the bad guy. And again, A perfect example of this just happened a month ago. And the Washington Post reported, after a gunman ambushed and killed a police officer last week in a midday attack in a Denver suburb, most witnesses scattered, ducking behind cars as they ran for safety. But 40-year-old John Hurley moved towards the shooter, pulling out his concealed handgun and firing at the attacker. After the gunman fell, Hurley picked up the rifle... The shooter had been carrying. Moments later, police pulled up to the scene, and one of the responding officers shot and killed Hurley with the rifle still in his hand. And this is exactly what I fear could happen more often if people aren't careful. The bottom line is, guns can be both good and bad. Unlike Major Morris or Barry Lee Welpley, who are just trash and deserve whatever they have coming their way. It's only fair after you, two ruined the lives of so many families and held the city of Naperville hostage for decades. And on that note, I'm going to be wrapping up this week's episode. Next week, we will be looking at the murder of, or another cold case murder, with everyone's favorite guest, Nick, from the True Crime Garage podcast. So I'd like to say thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. All of you know I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, and that is wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help the show fund, you can do so by clicking on the link in the show notes, or you can contribute via Venmo with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. I say it every week, but every contribution, big or small, does help keep these shows on the air. Now, you can help support the show also by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're getting your favorite shows. Again, those five stars do help keep the important cases I cover in the spotlight. And again, if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I've covered, as well as the new shows that I have in the pipeline, please feel free to follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. Thank you guys so much again for listening. Until next time, be healthy and stay safe.